Thank you, Chris. Well, it's great to be with you again this morning. I'm going to come down to you. That's okay. I actually see you then. It's lovely. AM top lady. Could you imagine how hard his life at school was to be? <laughs> I hope he didn't go to a boys' school. So, um, Claire and I, Claire, my wife, and I have been coming to church for nearly 25 years to this church. We love the history and the, the fact that we've been here for over nearly three decades now. And thinking back, and many of you have been here at the same times, and if you haven't, you're so welcome to be here, and 25 years' time we'll celebrate with you. Um, but if you've been here a long time, think how many sermons you've heard. Um, I counted up, and I must have been at least over a couple of thousand. Um, and thinking back over that long spell, I can only remember a handful on the topic we're on today. Even though Jesus talks about heaven and hell more than 30 times in the gospel. I think we've heard here in church, and in other churches too, many talks about the joys of the afterlife for Christians. That place Christians believe that, and I quote from Revelation 21 here, that God himself will be with them and be their God. And then these beautiful words that I know so many of us hold on to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. And yet, what about that other place? What about the opposite direction? What happens to people who haven't accepted God for themselves, who don't turn to God for their help, their purpose. In the 18 or so years that I've been preaching here at Holy Trinity, I too have never preached on heaven and hell together. So thank you, Patrick, if you're here, for giving me this opportunity after 18 years. So why do churches not talk much about heaven and hell together? One reason is I think it's been very badly done in the past. Christian pastors have often, I think, uh, taken us down these two destinies that we have, and I'm sad to say often describe them with such smugness. And this is terrible. Put simply, giving a message with little compassion, in fact, sometimes even with glee, saying that, you know, if, if um, we're all right because we're going to a marvellous paradise, but those out there are going to burn in hell. I think that's atrocious and a twisted view of how we should be. So it is with a lot of trepidation that I approach this subject. It's also with one personal experience I want to share with you right from the beginning. Claire and I have now lost all of our sets of parents. You could say it's carelessness, but... Um, and 13 years ago, Derek, who is Claire's dad, died from cancer. Derek and Sheila were such wonderful in-laws for me and parents for Claire. They loved each other so much. They had a model marriage. And they loved Claire and me so much, and we loved them. Now, as a child, Derek had been a choir boy at his local parish church in Ossestry in Shropshire. And as an adult, though, he did not profess. Um, he actually professed that he didn't believe in God. 
However, he went to an alpha course later in life. But unfortunately, and this has always made me sad, it was run really bad, very badly, and he stopped going halfway through. A few years later, as he approached death, he continued to completely respect my faith, Claire's faith, and also Sheila's faith, his wife. On his deathbed, a place of such tranquility, we sat by his bedside as Derek slowly and with such serenity slipped away from us. Claire and I continue to miss him to this day. In those last few hours as we sat with him, I've never prayed so deeply and so fundamentally for this man I love so much. Derek knew the gospel. He knew the message of Jesus. He knew that Jesus did everything for him in his life on that cruel cross, but didn't acknowledge it publicly. So will I see Derek again? Friends, I don't know. I believe as Christians, we follow a God who meets people where they are. And especially at this very raw moment when all is stripped away, I believe that all things are possible. And it is possible, even at that last moment, for Derek to have accepted Jesus' love. And that's why I'll never judge anybody on their salvation. It is not ours to do that. It is only God's. So it's not with glee that I preach today, but with tears. I've already said that Jesus talked a lot about heaven and hell, some 30 times at least. So if we're serious about knowing about being known as followers of Jesus, or if we're here inquiring and eager to find out about Christianity, then it's vital to consider, to ponder this critical part of life. As Benjamin Franklin once said, there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. Now, just an aside, I really apologize if I've just reminded anybody that they haven't done their self-assessment. Um, which is a deadline of the end of January. I'm not confessing anything there, but you might read this into it. Uh, but please put that aside, and you've got to, still got a few more days. But actually, the other thing is more important. Death. And this is the subject for us today. And so that's why I chose this parable from Jesus that teaches us so much more about life and death. In life, there are two phases for us to consider. There's this side of the grave, and then there's what happens afterwards. We're fortunate to have this Luke, have Luke record this parable, this story that Jesus uses to illustrate these fundamental truths about life and death. If you have your Bible open, it would be helpful. It's on page 1050, as Chris read to us. It's Luke 16, starting at verse 19. If you'd like a Bible and haven't got one, the stewards would happily bring you one if you want to raise your hand, but I'll leave that up to you. So it was Jesus' common practice to use parables to teach. But there's something absolutely unique about this parable. Have you noticed it? The uniqueness comes from, if you think about the other parables, what do we think about? We maybe think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Pharisee, the father, the younger son, the older son, the sower of seeds, to name just a few. But in each of those, the characters are anonymous. 
They're never named. Jesus doesn't give them names. But here in our parable for today, uniquely, Jesus names one of his characters, Lazarus. And he doesn't do this in any other parable. It says, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So this must be significant. Lazarus is the only person Jesus names in all of his parables. And if Lazarus being named is key, then surely the next question you jumps into your mind and mine is then why wasn't the rich man named? Surely actually in life the rich are the ones that people know, not some beggar. Out of the two, surely the rich man was the man that people would know in society and yet Jesus gives the beggar a name, Lazarus, and not the rich man. Why? Well, the original readers would have understood why much quicker than we would. Because they knew that Jewish names have meanings. And they would have known that what Lazarus meant. And it means, God is my help. That's what Lazarus means. Even through Lazarus' tough life, he looked for God for help. And what about the rich man? Well, we can read so much into how Jesus describes him. Simply, the rich man. This is his identity. If Lazarus looked to God for help, the rich man looked to his riches. That's how he's described. This is key here. And we'll learn more about the rich man as we move through the passage. For Lazarus, his God is God. For the rich man, his God is money. This is really challenging. What is truly our God? Central to our lives, whether we live a fine life or a tough life, where do we place our hope? Where do we seek help? Now in the West, I think this is really difficult for us. Life in this affluent society leads us, even subconsciously, to see our stability, our help, to be the money we have in the bank, or that good job that gives us money, yes, but also gives us value and pride and purpose? Or is it a person that we rely on for our help? Our wives, our husbands, a beloved child, or a close friend? Now, all of these things are good in themselves. But the difference is, is that Lazaruses enjoy the good things in life, but are not driven by them. They are driven by God and for God. Others not only, in, not, not only enjoy these good things, but actually they turn to them when things go wrong. They may even have God in their lives, coming to church, being respectable. But when the proverbial hits the fan, who do they turn to? Anything but God. Think back to your own life, to a really tough time in your lives, when one of these things was taken away. Maybe being made redundant, or an investment fails, or a pension collapses, or a close friend dies. How devastated are we? How much then do we realize we are placing our hope in that thing, or in that person who has gone? I've been made redundant a few times, most recently last February. And I, it can be a real wake-up call on where we are getting our value. So where do we place these things in our life? Are they blessings from God 
Or are we placing these things in that place where God should be, in our center? Now, thinking about this, I was thinking about if Jesus wrote this parable with us in mind, with each one of us in mind, what would he name us? Would he name us as that man with a good wife? Would he name us as that woman with a big bank balance? Or that man with such an important job? Or that woman with great friends? Or would he name us, as I hope I would want to be named, as Lazarus? So far, we've looked at Lazarus and the rich man from the side of this grave, of the grave, or from this side of the grave. Let's turn to what happens next. It says, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Both die. And Lazarus, the one who looks to God, ends up in paradise, to heaven. Jesus tells us that the rich man ends up in Hades. Here are our two places, heaven and hell. Very simply, the man who puts his trust in God is in one, and the man who puts his trust in his money is in the other. And notice these two places are completely and utterly separated and separate. We're told by Abraham, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Once we die, that's it. Our paths are set. There is not a second chance once we die for salvation. Our course is set. It is what we decide this side of the grave, while we're still alive here, that affects the rest of eternity. Now, the details of each course is set out in several places in the Old Testament and the New Testament especially in John's prophecy contained in the book of Revelation, which I quoted a tiny bit from earlier. And this subject of this sermon could expand to a whole series. We could have done eight sermons on this series, um, covering the nuances of the end times and the restoration of the new earth where everything will be put right. All about God's amazing plan. And we know from the Bible that it will be very, very good. But we don't have time to consider that this morning. But I want to focus today on what Jesus tells us in this parable about these two characters, Lazarus and this rich man, of what we can learn of their choices this side of the grave, as this is where the eternal decisions are made. Looking at the rich man, even now in hell, how does he behave? We see even here, he hasn't learned anything the first things he does is he continues with his position on earth and he wants Lazarus to serve him. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Then, with what sounds like kindness to his brothers, but I think has deeper meaning, deeper selfish meaning, he asks somebody to go back from Lazarus to go back from the dead and persuade them to change their ways. But I think he's really not taking blame for himself. He's trying to say to God, you didn't do enough. You didn't send somebody back for me. Abraham says, if they do not listen to, Ab to Moses or, or the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
everything, friends, everything we need, we already have. And actually, what we have is a man who's been raised from the dead. And this, of course, is our Savior, Jesus. The amazing truth of Jesus' salvation plan is that Jesus is there for Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus died for all people, for all times. Jesus invites each one of us into this life, this eternal resurrected life, this side of the grave, now, today, in Claygate. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is there for us. But he doesn't force himself on anyone. We are not robots. Because he loves us, it's our free choice to love him back or not to accept his gift or not, to choose to be Lazarus's or not. All through his life, the rich man relies on his riches and rejects God. Even in death, he rejects God. God, the God of love, is only actually giving him back what he wants, as tough as that is. If God forced the rich man to love him, would that be love at all? So where is sin in all this? All through his life, the rich man has been thinking of himself. Even if he does this in a respectable way, living life as a respectable man, maybe playing his part in society, we're not told how respectable he was. Although the first, word does, first verse does say that he was living life in luxury, and that doesn't paint him in a brilliant light. But this sinful nature... This selfish compulsion is there at all of our gates. We are all tempted sometimes, and in often, sadly, very repetitive ways, we're drawn to act selfishly. And this self-sinfulness, which is the result of it, sin breaks and destroys. Every time we reject God's way and choose our own, we hurt ourselves and others, and yet don't we keep doing it. All of us here are broken people. We're all, we all, from time to time, fail him and turn to our own ways. One of Jesus' disciples, John, many years later, would write in his first letter, If we claim to have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This includes all of us, whether we are believers in Jesus or not. We are all still broken people. We all sin and continue to turn to our own selfishness. And yet, John reassures us in that same letter to the early church, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As we did before, we confessed our sins as Annalise led us. So this side of the grave, we all have sin in our lives. But the key difference is that we seek to be named Lazarus. We seek his help. We seek to come back to God with meekness and seek his forgiveness. And he forgives us, holding his hand down and lifting us up. And then he considers us sin-free people. And we do this because we know how harmful sin can be to ourselves, to others, and to our relationship with God. Is this unfair that we don't have to pay for the sin we commit? 
What about the wrong we have done? Shouldn't that be paid for? Absolutely, and it has been. Jesus, the only sin-free human there has ever been, took all of our sin on himself and paid for it once for all on that cross. This is the free gift, but it's one that needs to be accepted because he loves us. He leaves us with that choice. Some accept this free gift and some don't. And if we don't accept Jesus, then that, still, still, that sin still needs to be paid for. God is just. And by rejecting God, we choose to pay for it ourselves. We choose to go to hell. And yet he longs for us to accept him and all that Jesus has done for us. And this is why I preach today with tears, not smugness. Because I long for as many as possible to know Jesus and want to be Lazarus. I long for us to spend time learning about this Jesus, seeing his amazing love for each one of us. This is what Jesus wants for you today. Accepting Jesus into our lives, accepting him or not, is the most important decision we will ever make. The result of accepting him leads to us being made right with God for the rest of eternity, no shorter. An eternity we cannot even start to imagine how good it will be. So I'm going to finish with a little quote from C.S. Lewis. And it may be one that you know so well already, and to that I do not apologize. It's from the very end of his series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia. Those books which so often are called children's books, but I really don't think they are. This series of seven books, I think, is an analogy to the Christian life. And right at the end, he writes a piece of prose which he so intends for us to capture the true essence of what happens in the afterlife. In the passage, Aslam is his analogy to Jesus. The passage says, um, and the passage, what's happened in the passage is that the children have actually died in real life. It says, their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslam softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holiday has begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can, we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, we cannot imagine just how wonderful the next life will be, an eternity with our loving Heavenly Father. The bottom line is that we all have the choice. We can choose this amazing future with him that starts now, or we can choose 
an eternity without him. Amen.